0: Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, Make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would you'd like to listen to this, please spread the word uh, however you can. I am on social media. If you would like to follow me, I am on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. My Twitter is on hiatus for a little bit. It will come back but it is Tis Mike Joseph. Feel free to follow me on either of those platforms. There is also facebook.com slash detoxicity. And if you have a comment, you can email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the lookout for new guests. So if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms. And certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast please reach out let me know once again i thank you for listening as some of you know detoxicity is not my only job in addition to the day job that i have i broadcast a music show on radio free brooklyn called the vibe from mike's house it's on saturdays at 6 a.m at radiofreebrooklyn.com if you're interested but i have had a show on radio free brooklyn almost non-stop since 2016. One of Radio Free Brooklyn's co-founders is Tom Tenney, who is my subject for this particular episode of the Detox Pod. Uh, during our interview, we trace Tom's early years as a bullied punk and theater kid in Massachusetts, through a stint as a working actor in LA, to his numerous current projects, uh, many of which center around community, something he is super passionate about. Uh, Tom was diagnosed with a bipolar uh, several years ago, and our conversation goes very in-depth regarding mental wellness, Uh, Tom speaks with a matter-of-fact candor and honesty that is typical of detox guests, and I am happy to welcome Tom Tenney to the show.
1: My name is Tom Tenney. I am the co-founder of Radio Free Brooklyn, a community radio station in New York City. I am a freelance copywriter. I am a freelance project manager. I am a university professor at New Jersey City University. I have many, many hats that I wear. So I'm one of those people that you've heard of that pieces it all together, sort of month by month. That's what I do. My background is in theater. I went to Ringling Brothers Clown College. There are many layers here, depending on what road we decide to go down that we can talk about.
0: Yeah, the zigging and the zagging through as many lives as you've had, I feel like that's one of those things that's super New Yorky. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it is. it it is Because, I mean, you can't
0: necessarily do this a lot of other places. So what was your original intent? When you were growing up, what what did you want to do? Or were you similarly just like, I want to do everything? No,
1: I wasn't, actually. I was pretty focused on doing theater or acting for a living. That was my, up until, really, I was about, 27, 28 is really what I wanted to do. So I did acting all through high school and then I went to NYU uh, for theater uh, Which I ended up dropping out of and I started doing these these off-Broadway productions, which ended up touring around Europe and so I, That's kind of what I wanted to or thought I wanted to do until I moved to Los Angeles And that just killed it for me. Realized I did not like this business, did not like people who worked in this business, wanted to be as far away from it as I possibly could.
0: Was there a specific thing you can pinpoint as not liking about this business? Or was it a bunch of things together?
1: It was kind of everything. It was living in L.A., which I know you don't have to do, but... Dealing with people in the industry, whether they were agents or casting directors or even other actors, it was just sort of a vibe that I wasn't feeling, especially being on the West Coast, which is, I grew up here, I grew up in Boston. And I don't know, I mean, I just needed something I felt more authentic, you know? So that, and then I eventually moved back to the East Coast and did a lot of underground performance in New York City, sort of producing and performing in and not trying to make a living by it, but just wanting to sort of. Create things without outside of any sort of structure that tells me what I could or couldn't do.
0: Got it. And I'm going to jump ahead and then jump back. So, what I actually don't think I ever heard the Radio Free Brooklyn origin story. I will say for the purpose of this podcast that that is how you and I know each other. Yes, I am a veteran of Radio Free Brooklyn, and you run Radio Free Brooklyn. So I uh, used to run Radio Free Brooklyn. I do not anymore. I will give I, you I, the honorary crown still, Tom. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I'll still take the crowns. I, you know, <laughs> I did it I did it for six and a half years, whatever it was, with very few crowns given. So I accept them when they're offered. So there you uh, go. Was there a question? I'm sorry. Yeah. Are you on the origin story for Radio for Brooklyn? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean it really goes back to my being in grad school. I went, I got my MA in media studies from the new school and while i was there it's funny i had originally gone to maybe do documentary film and when i got there literally everybody was doing documentary film so i was sort of like all right looks like you got this (laughs) i'm gonna do actually something that interested me more which was sound studies and radio and so i thought a lot about radio i wrote papers on radio i became really fascinated with this medium while i was in grad school And then after I graduated, I sort of stopped doing it, you know, as you do when you leave school, you stop doing the school stuff, but kept thinking a lot about radio and like what I could do with it. And I was sitting with Rob Pritchard one night in his apartment, middle of February, right around this time of year, pretty sure there was a bong involved. And (laughs) we were talking about ways that we both ran theaters on the Lower East Side back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we were talking about a way that we could foster that kind of creative community again like we used to be able to do there real estate has made it really difficult in new york to have Mm -hmm. you know physical spaces where lots of people can get together and like rehearse and perform and so we started talking about doing it as a radio station that one night we decided to do it and then we did it and so that was in
0: february and may we launched the station how does it feel seven years later to still be standing well,
1: to the extent that I am still standing,
0: it's great. I, I mean, I'm happy to see
1: that it is, has, is keeping going and that I don't necessarily have to be there to keep it going. That's a really nice feeling. But there's also that feeling of like, I have to trust these people now to pass it on to other people who will also keep it going, you know? It's like, where is that, where is that fail point gonna happen where it just collapses?
0: and it's out of my head maybe hand. it doesn't
1: maybe it doesn't maybe it do- i mean, is yeah. that too fatalistic a view like oh, it's
0: going to happen where's the fail point um, I I do think that that's that's a it's cynical I, I don't think it's necessarily unrealistic having lived the lives that we live but I don't know there's still a little rosy piece of me that's like oh this might actually work after all sure. 7 years is kind of a good number to say, hey, I don't know what your expectations were, but it feels like we kind of exceeded expectations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think definitely exceeded initial expectations, right? But then as you keep growing, your expectations change or they get larger. Sometimes they get smaller. But I think that that's an important thing to always keep in mind is what are my expectations right now, right? So how do I want to move this forward to the next thing? Not necessarily thinking that there's some big, great thing down the road that will be a crowning achievement. It's just constantly
0: a rocky road forward, you know? Right. What did you learn about managing people during this time? Because it's your business, essentially, or you're in Rob's business. And whether you are nominally in charge or not, you're the person everybody looks to as being in charge. And you're the one that people are going to ask questions of. And obviously Radio Free Brooklyn is not the only thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's one of many. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, interesting question. Uh, Because my career in digital media, which is a whole, that's another thing that I did for 20 years. Wow. I managed a lot of people at times. I, I have teams anywhere between like three people and 40 people throughout my career. So I thought that I was really good at managing people. Right. I thought this is a thing that I'm good at. Turns out. Doing it for a nonprofit, for people who are basically volunteers, is an entirely different story. It's a totally different skill, which I didn't have. So there was a lot of pain in that first, especially like in the first four years of me trying to figure this out. Like, how do you motivate people who really you have no incentive to offer them except for that one thing that they're already doing, you know? so. So it was difficult, and again, in the first couple of years, I went insane <laughs> several times. Like, I was like, "I don't know how to do this. People aren't listening. Doesn't your heart align exactly with the station's mission?" You know what I mean? Which I realized is never going to happen. Everybody's going to have their own sort of personal motive motivations. It's not a cult; it's an organization. I mean, it sounds extreme. I am exaggerating. You know what I mean? It is hyperbolic, but for the sake of making the point. And so it was about managing. And so there's. Is a much more delicate balance that you have to strike. And you need to be able to understand all these different motivations. They're not looking for a paycheck, which is the one thing that everybody at my other jobs got. Right. So you have to find a different way to make this community into something that it's never going to be a whole kumbaya. Everybody loves each other. Everybody shares the same values. But at least, focusing people in enough on the values that we do share which is this love of making radio right right yeah management it has been such a learning experience doing this and i feel like i came away from it in in as much as i am away from it right now really having having learned a lot and and one of the reasons i did sort of step away is i was kind of like i want to take this what i learned now and do something else cuz it's like you guys got this you're running it right so I want to go make the next thing. I don't know what that is yet. I was about to ask, has the next thing manifested itself yet? No, not yet. I'm I'm trusting it will within the next however long. Sometimes you need to take downtime between things and right. and just go like, fuck it. I'm not even going to think about it, which is sort of what I'm doing now. I'm taking a year. And well, I'm like in the middle of a year where I'm just going, you know what? I just want to see what my life looks like now. <laughs> All I've been seeing has been Radio Free Brooklyn. And now I want to look at the world around me and who are these people that I could meet that are, you know, not in Radio Free Brooklyn. And that's what I'm doing. I'm going to Columbia next week, which is really exciting. I'm taking some time to travel, just
0: doing things that make me happy. As it should be. I wonder, are you the type of person who has a task or has a responsibility and laser focuses on that responsibility to the detriment of every other thing that you're doing?
1: I understand the question and it's a complicated answer because yes, yes and no. I have certain things like Radio Free Brooklyn that there's a certain sort of level of intensity. It has to get up into me before I actually go and do that thing. But then when I do that thing, I have to do it. I have to do it correctly and I have to learn everything there is to know about it. At the same time, I'm also somebody who's not going to stay with this my whole life, as we have seen already, right? I'm going to want to go. I'm going to get get restless and want to go do something else. So, yes, in the moment that that's true, and sometimes the moment lasts six years, right, or seven years. <laughs> but then if you look at the whole sort of grand picture, I'm doing lots of different things. I had a girlfriend like, a long time ago who said, your problem isn't that you are too focused on one thing. It's that you're focused on too many things, right? And she meant that in a career way, I think, where she was like, you're never going to be successful. Well, it's not what she was saying, but the idea that you can only be successful if you really focus on one thing and you do that thing, which is not the case with me. It never will be the case
0: with me. I will jump around.
1: It's boring to
0: me otherwise. I understand that. As, have you always been like that? Was that something that manifested itself early in life or was that
1: I think related so. to being in theater
0: or, or I think so. being in New York? Or...
1: I think that I'm just somebody who, when they stop, I have no problem when I stop liking something to so go like, fuck it. I don't like this anymore. I want to go do this other thing. I played the trumpet when I was a kid till I didn't like it anymore. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And <laughs> my parents were like, wait, what? You can't just quit. And I'm like, sure I can. I don't want to do this I don't see myself ever being a trumpet player I'm glad I learned what I learned from it I didn't say it like that because I was probably 10 but right uh, you know um but yeah I, I have sort of always done that when I first lived in LA I became obsessed with Aikido for three years and went to Aikido twice a day every day and got as far as I wanted to there or did before I got bored right and then I just went
0: and did something else so, and was it that definitive? Was it just like one day you're like, "Huh, this doesn't excite me anymore. I'm out." No, I, sometimes it is like that.
1: Yes, with the aikido, it was more like <clears throat> I left L.A. to go to Clown College, and then after Clown College, I went to Chicago, and I thought about getting back into it, but then my life had already at that point sort of taken a different turn where it wouldn't it would have mm. been much harder to fit it in. Same way I did in L.A. So, and I didn't lose interest in it.
0: I just lost the passion for it. You Got know? it. Right. Right. So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about, there. as far as I know you, there's sort of an interesting dichotomy that I see in you where you are thoughtful and sensitive in a lot of ways. But then, like, I remember when we were at the bike shop and uh, whoever that dude was that owned the record store and you're stepping to this dude and we're like, oh shit, Tom's going to kill this guy. Yeah. Yeah. internally, and I feel like there are a few different ways we can go with that. Were you brought up in a traditional masculine environment?
1: Yeah, I wasn't. My parents were divorced when I was two and a half years old. My mom remarried when I was seven, but only stayed married a few years. So largely my childhood was living with my mom and my two sisters. So that's not to say there wasn't toxic. I mean, I did know my dad and there was, I believe, some amount of toxic masculinity at his house and some which was directed to us, but it's interesting, this whole idea of toxic masculinity, I feel like there's toxic and there's not toxic, right? Right. And like the masculinity part is just kinda like narrow it down to men or there is certainly elements, masculine elements that manifest themselves in a certain type of toxicity. But again, toxic is toxic. So there's toxic stuff with women and there's toxic stuff with men. I saying the toxic stuff for men I got from my dad who we didn't live with, but certainly affected me.
0: Right. And I'll also add that there are traits that are considered toxically male behavior, but they can be practiced and are practiced by any gender. Right. Right. Um, Sure. You know, it's just conditioned shitty behavior that is taught under the umbrella of this is how men should be and this is how men should be treated. But it doesn't necessarily mean that only men follow that, you know procedure, I guess. Right. Right. I Follow that pathway.
1: Yeah. You know, when I think of toxic masculinity, because I was thinking about this prior to this podcast, I'm trying to think of things from my life that could be defined that way. And this image that just kept appearing to me was this one Christmas. And I don't even know if this is toxic masculinity, but this is what I kept thinking of. So I kept getting this image of me at Christmas when I was probably about 10 years old ish at my dad's place. And there are these photographs of me wearing shoulder pads, football helmet, knee pad. My dad bought me this f- full football outfit, whatever they call it. Uniform? The, the, the gear. No, it wasn't a uniform because it wasn't like a jersey or anything, but it was all the stuff they wear under it, right? Like, okay. So all the gear, all the pads and, and all that stuff. Right. And I didn't play football. I didn't watch football. I knew nothing about football. And here in these pictures, I just look completely confused. (laughs) I'm like, what the
0: fuck has been placed on my body? What is this? What am I supposed to do? Did your dad say, like, your son, we want you to play football and toughen up or anything like that? Or was it just randomly like, here's some shit? I think it was like, here's some shit. I don't remember him
1: ever having a talk with me like that. He's like, hey, buddy, here's some shoulder pads. What are you doing? What's happening here? Yeah. So... There was a lot of that when I think of a lot of expectations that my father had of me being his only son, which I just totally didn't meet. Many, you know, many examples like that. And when he tried to mold me, it's like, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't just buy somebody's shoulder pads and they're going to start
0: playing football. Christ. I just think that's how it works. Not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> going through being a theater kid and you're a little older than me so this is the gen x era were you ever confronted or or, or harassed or bullied for enjoying theater
1: oh totally i totally i totally
0: was so i was a part of a
1: community group for kids called the boston children's theater and i've heard of that yeah it's been around for at least 50 60 years something like that i mean i'm Given my age, it's probably like 70 years old, at least. Anyway, and the building we all met was in Boston, and all the other kids were all the weirdo outcasts from their towns who all came together, so it was weird. It was sort of like a, a Freaks Anonymous meeting, right? Like where, where, <laughs> like nobody would know that you were here who was in your hometown, you know? You were just hanging out with like-minded people in this place, and then people at home wouldn't bother you. They don't know what you you're doing after school. Right. Right. Until I got into high school in public high school. And then I started doing shows in school. And then, yeah, you totally are like called theater fag and whatever. They used to call them the jocks and the rats at my high school. So we all know what jocks are. and The rats were the ones right. that listened to like thin Lizzy and wore leather jackets and had longer hair, but they were equally mean. And none of them liked theater fags. So yeah, there was a certain amount of danger involved in that. And I was bullied by them to to some extent, to the point where by the time I was in junior in high school, I was going to school maybe twice a week. And the classes I was going to were just my theater classes. And I ended up dropping out of high school, beginning of my junior year, I guess. And that was the primary reason? There were a lot of contributing factors. If it was just one thing that could have been fixed or addressed, that I'm not sure I would have left. But it was a lot of stuff. I didn't like the teachers. I thought the classes were boring. I didn't like most people. And that included a lot of theater people, too. I had maybe three friends. And often we would just not go to school together and just go to the mug and muffin in Harvard Square and spend the afternoon that way. So there was that. And one of the times I did get, get beaten up in my public high school was... This is probably 1980, and I was fully punk rock kid at that point, because that was just another way you could just be like, fuck you to all them. I was wearing a leather jacket with a crucifix safety pins to it. That's pretty
0: 1980 punk rock, it sounds like. It is, it's very
1: 1980 punk rock, but I grew up in a very Catholic, almost 100% Catholic working class community. And I got the fucking bejesus kicked out of me one day before school, right in front of the school, and I looked up at the people who were watching me get beat up was my English teacher who just stood there. And so finally, when I got up, she comes up to me and she goes, "Might want to rethink that crucifix. And this was a teacher, right? So yeah. Good God. So that's the kind of place it was. So I wasn't interested in being there anymore. And I dropped out, but I ended up going back to a progressive private high school in the in the suburbs. Right on.
0: Was your mom aware that this shit was happening? And I guess the ultimate result is that you were able to drop out and graduate from a different high school. But were there measures taken to kind of, I don't know, go to the school and say, "Hey, this kid is getting harassed," or i at that point? No, probably mom,
1: not because of the times. Because of the t- right, exactly. First of all, my mom. She worked sometimes two or three jobs, and she was a single mom, and these kinds of things were things we had to figure out for ourselves. really. She did not want me to drop out of high school, and yeah, she did try to convince me not to, but at the end of the day, I think she knew why I was doing it, and I think her attitude was, let him fail. He needs to fall, and I still believe this of everybody, you need to fall down several times before you start going, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. right? But in that case, it didn't fall down. And that was a big lesson for me, right? That not every time you take a risk, you're gonna fail. Sometimes it's gonna work out. And there's a whole story behind that, but we don't have the time for it. Long story short is that I persevered in, because I wanted to go to this private high school, and even though we had no money, and I made it happen. And, you know, in my mom celebrated that
0: with me. Like, that's awesome. You did this cool thing. So, right. Yeah. Do you think that 20 years later or 30 years later, you would have had a different experience if it had been 2000 or eh, 2010 instead of 1980? Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. But I also would have had a different
1: experience if it had been 1960 rather than 19, yeah. 1980 because because times change and, and our attitudes about things change and policies in schools change. There was no bullying policy when I was there. It was. Uh, yeah. Kids get beat up. Happens.
0: Yeah. I, I, I don't remember the word bullying ever being used. No. In my education ever. Exactly. Me neither. Yeah,
1: I know. It it was a word that came along for something that already existed that was now recognized as being a problem. So,
0: you know. Right. Not to go off on this trip, but that seems like it happens a lot lately. And people who are older are like, well, bullying didn't exist in my day. Of course it did. There just wasn't a word for it. Yeah, of course it did. Bullying has existed
1: forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm sure there were bully cavemen. I'm 100% sure
0: of that. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Just assume that that was the case. I got to ask, because one thing you've been open about with me, and I don't know about you know, people listening, and we can discuss this at length or however you want to do it, is your mental health diagnosis. When did that come into to realization?
1: Well, so it officially came into realization in 2008. I've always known that there was something that was, I'm not going to say wrong, because it's not wrong. There was something that was different about me inside than was maybe other people, you know, not, but it's hard to know because I don't know what other people are. But there was always this kind of weight, this stone of pain that lives somewhere in my chest that you grow to both hate and love and fear to be without, right? You don't strive for happiness because you want to preserve this. But at the same time, my behavior was not what I wanted it to be. And I recognized a lot of this stuff as coming from my dad. I started recognizing elements of my dad in myself. And I'd do something or i say something and it'd be like, my dad would, that's what my dad would have done. And then I sort of step back and you go, whoa. And as you get older, it just manifests in different ways until I think the the point for me was it was the night of Obama's election and I went to an election party where my recently ex ex ex-girlfriend was there and another guy who was just for whatever reason I think that he had wanted to be with her I don't know what it was but he was taunting me about having lost her within earshot of her and she was sitting at the bar with a glass of white wine and I out of nowhere just smashed her glass of white wine off the bar and I just went after the other guy and we went outside and somebody pulled me away and said you will kill him you don't want to go to jail for the rest of your life and they might have been right I might have killed him so I went home and I got a bottle of whiskey and I stayed up all night just out of my mind and I hacked into my ex-girlfriend's account, like Gmail, everything. And I changed all her passwords (laughs) and I did these things that are just so not okay. And then the next day I could barely get up off the floor. I mean, I was crying. I was desperate. I didn't know what to do. I felt like suddenly this rock had just burst out of my body and was now controlling me. And so I had emergency visit for some psychologist, right? That I had never met, did not know. And she was like, oh my God, you need to go, go to the emergency room now. You need to get meds or something. Just go and, and get yourself treated. I'm a psychologist. I can't give you medicine, but you need to do something. So I went to St. Vincent's and... They asked me all the sort of emergency room questions that they ask, and they, when they got to "Have you ever thought about killing yourself," my answer to them was, and which is, you know, probably the same answer I still believe. Not the same answer I would still give, but I said, "Every intelligent person that I know has considered killing themselves at some point."
0: That's not the right answer.
1: That's not anyone listening. This ever it's happens. It's not the here? answer
0: that you give to a no. A, Medical professional or a police officer who is asking you that exactly to you. you because suddenly you are no longer free to go. Mm-hmm.
1: And been there, yep, yep. And <laughs> so I ended up staying locked up in their psych ward for a week. It was only a week, which is good, but it was one of the most horrifying experiences ever. Just seeing how they treat people who do have these types of issues. It is not therapeutic at all. It feels more like it's punitive. Mm-hmm. So from there, I started seeing a psychiatrist who eventually, not, he originally was MDD, it was major depressive D- disorder. And then he, about a year in, changed his diagnosis to bipolar two, which is useful just because, not just to have a name for it, because then you can start treating it. Right. So I did Ruproprian for several years. Didn't work. Uh, it worked actually at the beginning and then it sort of seemed to lose its efficacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we switched to Lamotrigine, which is more of a mood. It's actually an anti-epileptic, but it, it's also prescribed for bipolar disorder. And that was four years ago-ish, maybe three. Anyway, that changed my life. It really did. And I had always been resistant. One of the reasons I didn't ever want to go to a, to see somebody about This thing that I sort of knew I had was I didn't want to be put on medicine that I felt would take away that really valuable stone of pain where a lot of my creativity, I thought came from, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm sure that's a very familiar thing, right? Like everybody,
0: yeah. I've heard it from plenty of other people and I've told doctors that myself. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And so we did the bupropion and then a whole series of the antidepressants, the SSRIs or whatever they're called, which are horrible, horrible, horrible. And then landing on the gene, which actually, like I said, changed my life. I'm now able to slow down, consider things. you know, it didn't take away that thing, though, which is good. It just tamed it. It just changed it from an enemy into an ally almost. So I love the way that you say that. So, yeah, I'm happier because I feel like I'm in control of my life. Except for the times when people come up to me and they go like, well, medicine isn't, you know, the cure, blah, blah. And then I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, who that's, does that, though? Oh, people do it. People do it. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Antidepressants are bad for you. I mean, chemicals, well, uh, you know, I'm supposed to just drink Tai Chi. I mean,
0: drink Chai Tea. <laughs> like, drink Chai Tea and do Tai Chi. Yeah. <laughs> god thankfully no one has ever uh said that to me Mm -hmm. i feel like there would be big issues if that were to happen not that i am the hugest advocate for being medication reliant sure but there's, there's no way that i can deny that particularly the meds that i'm on now have been super super helpful right yeah so and the
1: thing is especially in tribal cultures there was always a place for people who, what we now call disorders, like they were the shaman. They had a place in their culture. In our culture, we all have to be kind of sort of the same. <laughs> and so one of the things that this does for good or bad is that it allows us to you know, live in this world where you can't exp- fully escape the expectations of what you're supposed to be as a member of this society. So it helps you to stay on that track without completely losing yourself. I felt like a lot of the SSRIs were just kind of Stepford Wives drugs, you
0: know? (laughs) Yeah, they were turning you into an automated human being. Right, exactly, which definitely didn't want that. Yeah. I love the one thing, and you can tell me whether I'm wrong here, that strikes me about you is that you own your uniqueness in a very matter-of-fact way. Like, there's no revelatory oh, I have, I have bipolar too, or talking about your sexuality or anything about that, that makes it seem like this is like a huge, huge revelation that makes up a gigantic, inordinate part of your personality. I, you just seem kind of very, it is what it is about a lot of that stuff, yeah. which I think more people should probably be, because I feel like many of us, most of us, I would say, probably deal with some sort of mental health disorder or issue or whatever you want to call it right i've said this thousands of times most people exist somewhere on the spectrum of sexuality besides one of the two ends right so i think the more people are acknowledging of it without being like oh this is a big show the more that gets normalized people will just be like okay i can be regular old me and still be these things and it's all good right right exactly and the whole thing about sexuality and
1: the, the spectrum of sexuality i don't know I don't think it makes me different, but I've never seen the the poles of one to the other ever. When I was a kid, I remember not understanding why only boys were with boys, boys were the girls and girls with the boys, or, or why it was bad to be the other way. It just made no sense to me. And while I am sort of traditionally, you know, I don't even like saying the word heterosexual or bisexual, but I have mostly dated women in my life. I'll put it that way, but yeah, there have been throughout my life men who I've been attracted to, and I never thought of myself as being one thing or the other, or anybody being one thing or the other. And it's seeming ridiculous to me when somebody who's straight, for example, is just like, oh, I would never go, you know? Okay, well, you don't have to, but you might enjoy your life a little bit more if you just Kind of opened up that possibility, but who am I to go ahead? You do, you You do, you do, right. Do that. that's (laughs) totally cool. Just don't tell me what my attitude should be. Don't tell me because I've had a hard time perceiving that kind of dichotomy that I'm wrong or I'm doing something bad. That's just how I see the world. You're being who you are. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being who you are. No. Like also the same kind of thing with like people who like certain things sexually, right? There's like all kinds of judgment about so much of that stuff. And it's like, you know what? They are not harming anybody. They are just trying to get through this life with the most enjoyment that they could possibly squeeze out of it. Amen. So, you know? So let that happen. Obviously, nobody likes the con- condemnation, but I just don't even understand it.
0: It's coming from a background where I think I was raised to be critical of a lot of things, including my own sexuality, that I am now no longer critical of. I I, I think a lot of people just may not give it critical thought. They're just kind of caught up in this, if it's not right for me, then it's not right, period. Yeah. Or they're so repressed and so ashamed of what they're carrying inside and can't bring out sure that it turns into a wide stance uh, republican dude yeah, type situation well yeah
1: that's why it's emblematic of a lot of the republican party it's all this very repressed deep anger at not at, at not what i think is sort of like not being able to have that freedom of, to be who you are as you you know as you said my dad was very very homophobic and i remember him him being terrified when i was a little kid that i was going to be gay and i remember once i got a haircut i was like nine or something and i got a haircut and my dad is that's the way the fags are wearing their hair these days he's like and i was like oh like what's a fag I was, right yeah first of all right yeah and i didn't even like girls yet and then he says you still like girls right and i was like yeah. I mean, again, I didn't really like girls yet. You know what I mean? I like building forts and playing evil Knievel on my bike. That's what I like doing. Right. right. So all very confusing, but it was super homophobic. And I remember he would just get red in the face angry when I was an actor. And I would talk about my gay friends because as an actor, you have lots and lots of gay friends. Yes, you do. And I would try to show him pictures of places that I had been that had those people in them and he wouldn't look at them. His brother-in-law who lived in San Francisco was gay and would never go with my stepmother to see him when they visited out there. So there was a lot of that. And he's gone now. I look back on his life and I go like, it's just sad. It's just really, really fucking sad that this guy, there was something, something, some deep hurt or something repressed, or something just needed to be corrected, and it wasn't, ultimately. And that's tragic.
0: I, I feel like if you are that violently opposed to something, the... Opposition comes from the fear that you are that something. It's probably not one-to-one. It just logically makes sense that that's the case.
1: Yeah, it, it does make sense. I mean, again, like I am not... I would never... Say to somebody, "You are homophobic because you are gay." Because I don't know, maybe you're just a dick. So <laughs> oh, maybe it's as simple as that, right? That is true. I mean, you I can, mean, I, I, not, I guess that. T- I feel like I'm giving them a lot of uh, a lot of credit if I, <laughs> you
0: know, if I like you're, giving, you're putting some leeway in that. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, you're just saying, you know, you know, you could be repressed or you could just be an asshole. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate the fact that it doesn't sound like you grew up with really any shame about anything which i mean you didn't grow up catholic or anything so i assume that that's part of it i do not
1: have religious guilt that's for sure we grew up sort of not religious at all i mean went to christmas service with my grandparents or whatever we were in town
0: but like yeah
1: but that's really the extent of it i don't think it's entirely coincidental that like i said earlier my hometown was almost entirely catholic and almost entirely mean. I mean, I realize correlation doesn't mean causation. But at the same time, there was something especially about the super religious kids, they just weren't nice. But yeah, no, no religion, really. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist, then I still am today. So,
0: so you said earlier, that when you were in, I think you said when you were in high school, you didn't really like people. But you've been a part of building several communities how does that balance because it's young misanthropy i didn't turning into i didn't not like people i didn't like those people
1: <laughs> so, right so but we get to choose which people we hang out with i mean i love people i, I really do and once i came back to new york <clears throat> decided that i wasn't going to do the acting thing but just was wanted to like do performances make art have fun you know and i discovered back in new york a real community that had that same passion and I loved each and every one of those people, and I still do. And they're everywhere, you know? So I I don't not like people. I really like them. It's just that when you're younger, sometimes you're just put in with a group of people against your will that you're supposed to like. And right. I didn't.
0: So, yeah. Right. And in, in your closer relationships, like the relationships you really value, I'm assuming that you're open about you who you are if the topic of mental illness or I, I, illness I I don't know that I never like saying yeah, that no it does that and I don't know what to replace it it doesn't
1: with. it doesn't sound right but but I mean we right. can use it as a placeholder so we know what we're talking right. about but I agree with you i I think the word illness is extremely problematic but yes so more so now I think than I used to be which was maybe part of the problem in some of my relationships is that like in high school, I I was feeling like I was put into a situation where I was supposed to be a certain way, you know, and I'm in a relationship now with somebody who just really, I feel accepts me for just who I am and I can do the same with her and Neither one of us are perfect. Neither one of us has led perfect lives. And as people get older, they get more complicated. And I I think those complications can be beautiful, you know? And so I realize that part of my past is what makes me complicated. And so I try to, I try to turn that into an asset, right? And finding somebody who can share the same things about themselves is really, really important and hard to find. And so in the relationship and now I feel very fortunate. Everything seems to be what I want it to be in a, in a relationship. So, yeah.
0: And I would also say, I, I ideally, uh, this doesn't happen for everybody, of course, but ideally having these experiences and being a complicated person makes you more of an empath. Like it makes you more welcoming of other people's differences or complications or what have you. Right. And I mentioned that one of
1: the things I do is I teach, um, at New Jersey City University. And I think that 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 quality is really useful for teachers, you know, you know, I have a passion there, which is teaching and learning, but then also for helping these kids get through their college experience, not being bored out of their heads and helping them to 30, 30 kids per class per semester. It's not a lot of kids, but you want to be able to give them something of who you are in the process, right? Not make them be something that they're not, but be open with them as well to show them that they can be, and and to help them along the way. You know what I mean? Every kid comes from a different background, has different circumstances, and I don't want to be one of the people that puts them into a box they don't belong in. When I worked at Hofstra, I told my students once in one of my classes, if you don't like college, if your parents are making you be here, you can drop out. If you, I mean, totally not my place to say that, but it's true. There were kids who were really unhappy and the the message was really just like, you get to choose, you get to choose if you want to be here or not. Yes, I understand their circumstances. Like maybe you won't get that car for Christmas or whatever it is. That's a choice for you to make. Right. But yeah, just being able to be a part of a student's life, even if for a really short period of time while they're at that age where they're making decisions for the rest of their life is is amazing. I love it. And it, maybe in a way it's a weird substitute for me not having kids. You want to pass stuff along, you know? This is how evolution happens, right? Cultural evolution. We try to do things a little bit better than the last time around. And then you try to pass that on and hope that they will do a little better than you,
0: right? I like the idea of being a mentor and really being able to offer up and assist to people when they are more cognizant of what it is that you are doing to help them or w- when they can appreciate the things that you say a little bit more. And I definitely believe my time to be a parent has long passed and I'm not really sure that I ever wanted to do it in the first place, but when I'm talking to Friends, kids who are four, five, six, if you have any wisdom to impart, they're not going to listen to you. They just want to be like, ah, and go crazy and jump around. But when you're talking to teenagers and young adults, you have the ability to really, really, really make a difference in the life of someone who is maybe navigating the space between that kid thinking of my parents, I got to do this stuff. This is what I've been taught. And this is what I feel about myself. You get to sort of bridge that gap. Right. Right. Yeah, totally.
1: And, and it is a great age. And at the same time, I don't want to steer kids down a bad road either. I don't, <laughs> definitely don't want to be responsible. And I think, thought of this because at the end of the last semester around Christmas time, one of my students emailed me. She like, thanked me for the class and really made her think about so many things about her life. And I didn't even suggest to this class that anyone should drop out, but she was like, made me think like, maybe I don't want to be in school. And then she goes, I'd really much rather just stay home all day. And I was like, "Well, oh, no, 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 don't do that."
0: That's 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 not an option.
1: <laughs> right. Like I was like, that's not what I meant.
0: <laughs> don't stay home all day. I mean, if if that was an option, more of us would do it.
1: Yeah. I know. Or <laughs> some of us do it too much now and we wish it was less of an option. You know, after a pandemic, right. it's like, "Oh my god, I, almost everything I do out of all of my jobs, except for teaching, don't require me to be on site anywhere." So, right. You know. Columbia will be a good thing for you. Oh, it'll be great. It will be <laughs> fantastic. I'm so looking forward to just having an early, I, and I decided, even though I haven't done it yet, I've decided I wanted this every year. I just want to, mid to late winter, just take a break for a week or two and go somewhere sunny and warm and let the sun recharge you just to give you
0: that little extra boost to get through spring, to to, give, to make it through, mm-hmm. you know? To make it to spring, yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, look, I had the good fortune to uh, take a trip to Mexico in November, and it definitely carried me through at least through the holiday season. Sure. Just having a week of sunshine and and peace. Yes, exactly.
1: And in New York City, when it gets cold out, you stay inside unless there is a thing that you have to do. And again, since pandemic, there are fewer things that I have to do outside. So it's like I get holed up here. and I'm like, oh, my Lord, just let me go. I just want to run along a beach
0: for a week. Well, you'll get that chance soon enough. (laughs) So Tom is awesome. And even though he does not participate in the day-to-day active leadership at Radio Free Brooklyn anymore, his fingerprints are all over the network. Uh, He still hosts a show called Frequency Theory, which is live every Thursday at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. So make sure you check that out. Follow him on Instagram at Tom Tenney. That is O M T E double N E Y. And uh, I, of course, thank Tom very much for his honesty and for taking the time out of his schedule to appear on this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at guy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me detoxpod at gmail.com love to hear constructive criticism love to hear feedback would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest please by all means reach out to me and remember if you enjoy this podcast subscribe rate comment do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible tell a friend do whatever it is you need to do and uh, thank you once again for listening i personally want to thank the following people for their support uh, calvin williams and jacob block jeff giles and andrew grossman thank you very much i hope all of you stay well stay safe and healthy until next time